Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we take the leaves of each book and steep them in a piping hot tea and then we drink it and tell you exactly what the flavor notes are so that you don't even have to put yourself through it. That's true. And who should keep listening? The people who love to hear about facts and flavor. And if you don't like that, if you strictly want the facts, I'll tell you what, you can drink the tea yourself somewhere else. Ashley, do we have anybody to thank this week? Yes, I would like to thank the fun and challenging June's Journey game. Who doesn't love a good mystery? In the hidden object murder mystery game, June's Journey, you'll awaken your inner sleuth and step right into a thrilling adventure set in the heart of the Roaring Twenties. Find your inner detective and download June's Journey today, available on Android and the iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. And thank you to Dipsy. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories. If you're looking to light a spark or heat things up, there's a story waiting for you. Get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. Claire. Yes. Tell me the story of your life. If you were writing a memoir, what would you title last week's chapter? Okay. I'm calling it Exodonted. What does that word mean? You would have never known because Can I just invented Exodonted. Does it have anything to do with an orthodontist? You would think. Tell me what Exodonted means. Okay. It's excited, but daunted. Oh, I was going to say a daunting accident. Because I'm so excited. By the time this episode comes back, I'll actually be safely back on U.S. soil. But between recording and playing, I will have gone to Portugal, which I'm so excited about. I cannot wait. Me and Mac have never been on vacation together. That being said, I'm a bit daunted. I have two great loves in my life. And then a third would be like a smaller love for Ashley. (laughs) I'm kidding. You're a top love. Thank you. But it's like... Mac and then you guys, the listeners. So I'm excited to spend this time with my fiance, but I have accidentally parceled away most of that free time to reading the book for next week and then also reading Deep D's memoir for the Patreon and then also reading LA Candy, the Lauren Conrad novel that came out 10 years ago about her life. I'm reading it for another podcast, but I will be covering it on the Patreon as well. So we've got a lot of like bonus steps coming up and oh boy, am I like not really that excited to get to Portugal and then sit down with Lauren Conrad's alter ego. I like don't <laughs> think you'll have to. You read these books so fast. You have several long plane rides. Are you? Can you sleep on a plane? I try. I take right, drugs. Right, but does it like to, work? When I take drugs, yeah. Oh. I'm doing red eyes. Anyway, I'm happy about it. I think reading about Deep D's one month on a reality TV show is exactly how I want to pass the long weekend. And I'm very excited and I'm excited to tell you guys what's in it. But also, do you ever have that thing where you're like, I have so much free time that I've planned down to the minute. (laughs) That is actually the most constricting free time I've ever experienced. That's why vacations stress me out so much. It's too many activities. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celeb and you had a memoir, what would you call it? What would this chapter be? What's the week? Hit me. I would call it Practice Makes Perfect because there's something that I've been working on in therapy that I got to practice this last weekend and I think I'm getting mediocre at it. Oh my gosh. Can you share? Yeah. The thing that I'm working on is not getting mad at people for asking questions that annoy me. So the things are about life stuff, about working on assuming that people don't mean harm by asking a question about your life. They're just not really thinking about how fucking annoying it is. That's fair. I think we experience that a lot as content creators. Yes. That sometimes you'll get the same comment 1,000 times and so you yell at somebody and they're just like, I don't know, I just said one thing. And you're like, 
you did just say one thing, but I heard that one thing 1000 times and you were the unlucky person who got my response. And it is like most aspects of my life that especially when I'm in a context of lots of people that I don't see that often, a lot of people ask me the same questions over and over and over again about like how dating stuff is going. Am I in a relationship? Am I talking to any guys? Does anyone ask about your amazing podcast? So then the people who ask about my amazing podcast ask the questions in a way that makes me feel like they don't think that this is a real job. And so then I get very stressed out about that. And I'm like, okay, no one that I've spoken to in the last hour means any harm. So I have to let it go. That's hard. And I'm proud of you. That is a big thing to work on. Thank you. So how'd you do? It went well? Yeah, I didn't snap at anybody. Maybe we should make you a sign. (laughs) Podcast going well. It is my full-time job. I am not still copywriting. I'm not dating anyone right now. Do not set me up with someone you know who lives in a different city than me. How's the rest of your night going? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, great. So should we get into this week's episode? Yes. So speaking of me not snapping, not making a scene, guess who is our fucking angel friend, friend of the pod. I'm just kidding. She's actually not. But if she were, I would like that. Constance Wu. So Constance Wu wrote, Making a scene, I do want to caveat this with this book comes on not even the tail end. It comes two years after she was majorly canceled for a tweet that I can't remember because I'll be honest, I didn't look it up before this podcast. It was something about being mad that Fresh Off the Boat, the show she stars in, got picked up for a new season. She doesn't even directly address Fresh Off the Boat. She just says like, shit, I'm crying. I'm so mad right now. She addresses that moment. I also want to say this book is not written like a chronological memoir. It's a series of essays and we are not going to cover every single essay. This is a really nice read. I really enjoyed the book. So if you are interested in Constance Wu, I recommend picking it up. There are some essays that we feel weren't that great of a conversation, but they are just like about how much she loves her pet rabbit. And I'm like, (laughs) cool. If you guys want to hear about that definitely dive in. I don't think you need us to explain that to you. So we're going to skip it entirely. We're going to talk about the other stories that I do think were very moving and interesting. And I'm very glad she wrote them. I would say this was a good book done well, Mm -hmm. which I really appreciated because I think with authors like this, we tend to see authors try to do a great book that they can't pull off. Yeah. And this just says some things that I appreciated. So we'll get into it. Making a Scene by Constance Wu. It came out October 4th, just last week. You guys are getting it not fresh off the press, but almost. Yeah, like fresh and a half. So Constance Wu was born March 22nd, 1988. I just want to preface this by saying she got fresh off the boat, which was her first real breakthrough role. Until then, she had been, I think, getting one-off gigs here and there, but she had three roommates. So she wasn't crushing it by any means. Yeah, she was... 33 when Fresh Off the Boat started. So she probably was cast in that role. Maybe she was like 32 years old when she auditioned and got the role. So that is huge. She's gone on to star in some of the biggest movies of the last decade. (laughs) And Lyle Lyle Crocodile coming up starring Shawn Mendes. I would see it. What is it about? I've never heard of it. What do you mean? It's about a crocodile. (laughs) Named Lyle Lyle? Obviously. (laughs) These are the questions you shouldn't be asked. I know, but I'm saying, like, did it look like a good movie or did it look like a silly movie about a crocodile? It looked like Paddington Bear, but New York and a crocodile. So a good movie. Yeah. So in her introduction, she talks about playing the role of girl when she was in college. Girl is a character in a play called Boy's Life. Girl has lines, but she has no name. And she exists solely as a character development object for one of the boys in Boy's Life. And she was playing this character, playing her as a stereotype She was doing the outfits, doing the tattoos. She was 
playing her. It's kind of a crazy mess. And then one day when she was on stage, she said her voice came into my head out of nowhere, a complete surprise. I am more than what you're giving me, she said. It changed everything, the way I approach acting, the way I think about people. It all changed. I'd written Girl Off as tattoos and black eyeliner, a crazy person, but I am more, she said, listen to me. So I did. And what she told me broke my heart. So basically, she's explaining that this character who they've decided is really out there, she's not out there. She's just wanting to be heard by this boy. So her stories and her mannerisms get bigger and bigger and bigger because she wants to be heard, not because she's crazy. And this really informs the rest of her life. A lot of this book is about how as a kid, she felt very unseen and unheard, even though she was a pretty loud kid. And I think that that is pretty common. I think as a kid, there's so much fear and there's so much shame for every behavior, everything that's outside the norm. Anything that feels like it might make a scene is shameful. And so I think she really moves through the the rest of this book with a lot of interesting insights about shame and spotlight. Growing up, I was taught to never make scenes. It's unbecoming, unladylike. As a kid, I held back so much. And whenever I reached a breaking point, the accumulated feelings avalanching out of me in tears or tantrums, I found that to be ineffective too. No one heard my words. They only heard the tone and responded by saying things like, whoa, you're intense or calm down. With this book, I'm trying to tell the story of my own inner girl, you know, give her a few more scenes. And I actually think she very effectively does that. She comes across deeply human. I mean, we haven't gone back and done the work of really looking into the big controversy But after reading this book, it's hard to think that she wrote a tweet about not liking her job and you're like, she should have died. (laughs) Yeah. So the first essay is called Lucky Bucks and it's about her first great young love. Maybe not even her first, but the great young love of her 20s. And I think these types of chapters, she has a few of them where she talks about relationships is where she really shines. She has this way of capturing how obsessed you can be with somebody and how ridiculous and embarrassing it is after the fact. And I think what she does well in this book is talk about things that aren't that big of a deal, but are a big deal to you, but you can move on and gives them just enough weight where you're like, at the time, this was my whole fucking life. And of course, 10 years later, okay, whatever. It's not a big deal anymore, but it's nice to recognize that temporarily this person was my whole world. I guess the thing that I really loved about this book is the way that she writes about relationships is humiliating. Yes. And I think that that gives her such a humanity. The glass that's shattering right now is the celebrities are just like us nonsense. The way that celebrities, I think that it started with the beginning of the pandemic, the way that they were like, ah, we're all annoyed to be trapped inside too. And it's like, okay, well, your life is very different than mine because celebrities, they're just like us used to be. They also buy groceries. They also buy coffee. And it's like, sure, that doesn't mean anything. But the way that she talks about embarrassing relationships, that is human. That is something all people do. All 20-year-old girls are fucking idiots. Yeah. And so she talks about the highs and falling in love with the maitre d' of her restaurant and how, because it was a cool restaurant, the fact that he was the host made him seem really cool. And I think we've all been there being like, wow, he's the top dog in this world that does not matter to anybody. But because it's my world, this feels like a real clout thing. She thought she couldn't date him because he was the host of a cool restaurant where she was just a waitress. And that is such a 21-year-old perspective. But she talks about when they fall in love. And she says, dumb stuff like that was funny to us. Looking back, it sounds annoying and attention-seeking. And it was. We were calling attention to our joy so that others might share in it. In a naive way, we thought our pranks and outbursts were gifts to the world. And then she goes on to be like, I mean, they would just like lay with their hearts on each other. And they said, I love you at the first time. And sometimes they had the exact same dreams and it seems so unbelievable and they would just be at their restaurant doing pranks and 
laughing and hooking up in the bathroom and sending each other love notes every 10 minutes. The major D would pass notes about allergies or birthdays and stuff to the servers through a host. And so he would pass notes through the host that were just like, I love you. And she says, looking back, it's also cringy to have emotions that big. She talks about how they felt that they discovered love. And she's like, it sounds ridiculous, but we felt like we did. And she talks about a New Year's Eve she spent with her older sister and her older sister's boyfriend. And the four of them just played board games and drank wine. We laughed about nothing and everything, just the four of us. While I've had a lot of lavish and exciting New Year's Eves, that small casual night of board games and laughters is still one of the nicest ones I've ever had. And I think she just really touches on that moment when you are just like young and an idiot and in love and everything is the best and you're laughing and silly. But then, of course, things change. He went on to get a PhD and she supported him. When I was with Rob, I didn't notice anything else. I really didn't. I didn't notice how serious he was becoming, how it was making me nervous, how he had stopped doing silly naked dances, how he didn't have pretend fake fights in restaurants just for kicks. He was on his way to becoming a doctor and I was still in the same place trying to be an actress. My trajectory wasn't changing, but his was. And she talks about how this made her really insecure. I mean, in the same way that I literally was just talking about how frustrating it can be when someone asks you a question that just is annoying to you. He would ask her, like, how did your audition go? And to him, I'm sure it was supportive. But to her, it felt like nails on a chalkboard and she would lash out against it and it would just create this tension in their relationship. It's that thing where when you have like an anxiety in your brain and you're saying the same thing over and over and over again and then someone else says it and that is the thousandth comment. I think we've all been there when you're insecure about something and somebody asks about it. Yeah. And you don't have anything good to say. So now you just feel embarrassed. Something that I think that is likable about her in this book is that when she frames the dissolution of this relationship, she mostly says, here's where I was lashing out. Here's where my insecurities tore us apart. And I think other memoirists might have taken the other attack. Like, oh, he was growing up. He was moving on. He didn't have time for me and the fact that I hadn't succeeded yet. But she very much is like, I felt insecure. And so this is how I acted badly. And she's like, he never held it against me. He was just kind the whole time. And she's very nice about him in memory. So he breaks up with her and she accepts it under the assumption that that breakup is not forever. And I think she also calls herself out here where she's like, I said yes, because I assumed that if I played it extra cool, he would come back. And so, of course, they break up and he moves on and she becomes Constance Wu many, many years later. And he is now a professor and has a wife and kids. And she talks about how they'll email from time to time every few years and that she still has love for him. And she ends it with, there's a window of time in life where you're old enough for sex to not be new, but young enough to love without fear. It's a small window. The miracle is that Rob and I found each other in that window when I walked in the wrong door and my heart dropped to the bottom of my feet. When he'd said, it's sort of an impermanent thing, you know, and I'd replied smiling, isn't everything? It was like, we already knew, but we fell in love anyway. And I am so glad we were so lucky. I also feel like she really likes who she was in this relationship. And I like that about her. I also think she liked that she was so embarrassingly in love. Yeah. That she could feel that big and that she went for it head over heels. And she says, when I think back on our relationship, parts of it seem cringeworthy and obnoxious. Putting my heart on his heart and feeling them beat together and saying, I love you. Parts of me wants to groan and call it cheesy. Somewhere along the way, big feelings become foolish. Now that I've had more loves, I can see that what I had with Rob wasn't that special in context. Not that extraordinary in the scope of an entire life. When I think about how we were, I think, ha, those young kids don't know anything. They think they're the first people to discover love, but we really did. And I think that that's what I really like about this book is one, her ability to take accountability. She always looks at how did I act because of my insecurities, like where was I coming from? And then two, I think a lot of 
memoirs out of insecurity feel this need to make your memoir important? Like, well, why am I writing a book about my life? Because extraordinary things happen to me. And I think she does what I love in a memoir and say, we all have these moments that maybe aren't extraordinary because they're so common, but that doesn't mean that to us, they weren't important. And I think she describes them really well. I think it's a feeling that we have about relationships that just because it's not permanent doesn't mean it's not important. Yeah. And I really do believe that, that like people get so caught up on this idea, like you have to date to get married or if you, if you didn't end up in a marriage, then the relationship was a failure. That's personally not the way I look at relationships. I think you can meet someone for a moment in time where you both in that moment really loved each other, but you kept growing and you happen to grow apart, but that doesn't undermine the joy and the love that you had. And I think she's able to look at this relationship and say, I don't regret that we loved each other. I think a lot of people feel the need to only really highlight it is something like wild happened. Like a lot of times in these memoirs, we only really hear a lot about a past relationship that didn't end in marriage. If the partner died. Yeah. Or if it was abusive or if they cheated, if it like hurt you in some way that changed you to your core. I really thought this was just a sweet ode to young love that has to be impermanent. Young love can also change you to your core. It just doesn't have that same gravitas that some of the more serious of the capital S things have. But I think that it is serious and it is important. And I think we both always say this. You don't have to manufacture things that happen to you in order to write a good book. Mm -hmm. You can write about the things that did happen to you with honesty. And it is interesting to read. The thing that makes it common is what makes it universal. Yeah. And that means we can all see ourselves in it. Next, we're going to talk about a chapter called Snap and Whistle, which is the chapter about her relationship with her younger sister. So she has two older sisters and one younger sister, but there is a really big age gap between her and the older set. Her parents had two, then took a break and then had two more And she later finds out her mom actually got her tubes tied. But she says in their family, it was like a very natural pairing. There was like the older two sisters and the younger two sisters. And she and her youngest sister, who she calls E, were best-o friends until they weren't. She calls them snap and whistle because she could snap and Constance could whistle. And so they felt like they completed each other. But when I went to middle school, our buses were on different schedules. Suddenly, I was the only kid at that bus stop. I tried to chase the falling leaves by myself or kick a pebble all the way to home, but it wasn't as fun without E. So she goes to say, I missed my little sister, but I wasn't sure she missed me. Whereas I was bold and daring, she was always the gentle and quiet one, the introvert to my extrovert that snapped my whistle. Maybe she liked not having me around, I worried. Maybe that meant she could finally shine. As little kids, we'd liked how our differences complemented each other, but as I grew up and started worrying about perception, I began questioning which was the better way to be. I started thinking her way was better, more likable. It comes down to a doctor's appointment where they get presents from a treasure chest and her little sister gets three presents from the treasure chest And they forgot to even open the treasure chest for Constance. And so she has this insecurity that everyone likes her sister way more than they like her. And she has this proof in her mind that because they gave her sister all these gifts and they gave her no gifts, it's just obvious everyone likes sister more because of her gentle demeanor. He started making her own friends right around the time I was having difficulties with my own middle school friend group. I was too ashamed to tell anyone and I started becoming jealous of her. It sparked a kind of terror inside me and I began acting out against E. I was a teenager by then and my feelings were enormous. I forbade her from borrowing my clothes. And when she tried to sneak them out of the closet, I yelled at her. And so she goes on to say that she really kind of terrorized her as a teenager. And then we kind of became strangers. I was mean and controlling and she shut herself off from me as a way of protecting herself. So she gets older and she obviously longs for this relationship that fell apart. I also think it's important to note that as soon as Constance went to college, her parents got a divorce 
and her parents lived in different houses. And so I think right as she left college, there was like a divide in the family. And so there was never a unit to return to. As she gets older, she really longs for this relationship she used to have with her sister and she starts therapy. And she talks about writing this long letter of apology to her sister that her sister never even responded to. And she does give her sister credit. She says, it was unkind of me to force a conversation that I knew she wasn't comfortable having. Sometimes it's hard to know if an apology is meant for the receiver's benefit or the apologizer's own selfish gratification. Probably the latter. But then she talks about how her sister does constantly bring up this hurt and constantly bring up the way that Constance was so mean in school whenever they're home for Thanksgiving. It's always like Constance was so mean to me growing up. And one day Constance just absolutely breaks down about it. I became quiet in the backseat in a way that I knew revealed my guilt. She was driving, her boyfriend gazing at her adoringly as he stroked her hair. I could tell that he already knew the stories, that she was the innocent victim and I was the evil villain in this imagined picture of our childhoods. But he'd only just met me. He didn't know anything. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I broke down crying, loud heaving sobs punctured by gasps of despair. She sobs a lot in this book, just so you guys know. I choked everything out. I'd held back over the years how she was right, how I was ashamed of myself and hated myself for it, how I knew she had gotten the apology letter I sent her years ago, how she knew that I had been trying to be better. I had been kind and supportive and deferential to her for the past decade. Didn't those years of good behavior count for anything? Would I never be allowed to amend the mistakes I made as a kid? It was like she wanted me to remain the mean, sad teenager. Couldn't I be allowed to change the way I'd let her change? I will say, I do wonder how much her sister hadn't forgiven her because I know her sister brought it up a lot and that would make it seem like she was still harboring resentment. But I also wonder how much it might have just been a part of the character she'd built for herself within her family. I am the youngest sister. Constance was really mean to me. My parents are divorced. Like, I wonder if it was just a bullet point in the way she told the story of her family. And so it was really hard for her to move on from that. Rewriting a story is very difficult. And I think that I wonder if it was anger or if it was just etched in. It's hard. I, but I also feel for Constance. I really feel for Constance. Like at what point are you like, I'm sorry for what I did when I was 15. Can I please be allowed to grow? And I think that's one of the hard things about family. I mean, we always joke when I go home, I have been getting myself out of bed. I went to boarding school. I've been getting up by myself and going to where I need to be in the morning since I was 13 years old. The minute I'm home, I forget to set an alarm. I lose a coat. I haven't lost a coat since the second grade. The minute I'm home, I'm losing stuff. And they're always like, don't lose your stuff, Claire. And I'm like, I don't. I don't until you tell me not to. And then I do. I always do that. Whenever I'm home, my dad's like, what time do you want me to wake you up in the morning? And like, I'll be home for a week or something. And you and I have a pretty flex life. Yeah. And my dad will come come to my room at night and I'll be like, what time do you need me to wake you up for work tomorrow? To report to Claire. <laughs> I'll be fine. <laughs> but also I do kind of believe that even if she's so apologetic and she's trying her hardest not to be explicitly mean to her sister, it does sound like Constance, in a way that I can relate to, just is a tougher person. Like, you know what I mean? I think she has a personality where she is extroverted and she says things she doesn't mean and like she crosses lines and if she's hurt, she's going to tell you about it. She's going to sob at you. As opposed to being the passive aggressive sister and laughing about how awful you are with her boyfriend up front, she's going to have a mental breakdown in the back and start hysterically crying and begging for forgiveness and writing thoughtful letters. And that's very clear of her. Um, so I really relate to Constance a lot. I don't know that I would like her, but I relate to her. <laughs> I also know that there's a chance she goes home and even if she's not as awful as she was at 16, she probably is more prickly than her other siblings. And that just is her personality. And her sister isn't interested in forgiving her because it's not that much better. So I see both sides, but I think it's very well laid out here. And I think it is one of the more complex sibling relationships we've seen explored. Mm -hmm. Because again, this isn't grand. There's no like big major falling out. No sibling did anything evil to the other one. 
it is just like the story of their relationship. Yeah, and siblings fight. We talk about it all the time. That's just what siblings are. And they don't have some major making up. You can't really tell at the end of the chapter what their relationship is like now. It seems that it's better. It does not seem that they've become best friends. Yeah. And so she texts this essay to her sister and her sister responds, I think the one thing you're missing from your essay is how I was very much your follower. You would test the boundaries of something and make it feel safer for me to maybe try. You were the fearless one, the person who protected me from the neighborhood Billy and his mean taunts, the one who always had a point of reference for other people sucking and could see outside other people's lame values. I've always admired your strength, drive, and how bold you are in everything you do. But yeah, I did very much feel rejected by you in middle school. It's surprising to hear that you missed me too. Something about like being surprised that Constance missed her is a theme I'm very interested in. The secret mutual jealousies that women will feel in friendships and just being so unaware of all of your insecurities, the idea that the person you're so hurt by also feels them too and how hard it is for all of us to see past that sometimes. Yeah. Like they both just missed each other. And now they can't ever be friends again. And it's too bad. <laughs> but that's life, baby. <laughs> too bad. So sad. It is so funny how many relationships just fall apart because it's like, all I ever wanted was to love you. Like all anyone wanted was to be friends or be in a relationship or love each other. And somehow it just it backfires. It's so true, though, because I feel like we view relationships only ending because people are indifferent or they stop caring or they hate each other. Like some relationships. <laughs> literally combust because there's too much love in that that and everyone's is true just so, everyone's like i love you more and you think you love me more and somehow we can't make it work because we're just so hurt yeah impeach the president this is the next essay when i was in eighth grade i hated a girl so much that i wanted to cut off all her hair and so this is a chapter about how she had a best friend named fiona and they once again were secretly competitive with each other and they ended up forming this great friend group and she had this great pack that she ran with and she was so happy. You can tell she's very proud to have been part of like a crew. And then one day she like says something insensitive to Fiona. Fiona flips on her. It starts according to Constance the summer before when her and her best friend Fiona decide they're going to start talking to boys. Right. Constance has a really easy time talking to her crush, but Fiona failed to connect romantically with Alex, even though she was really pretty Fiona wasn't great at talking to boys one-on-one yet. Whereas she and I used to giggle about crushes, now we barely talked about them. Either oblivious or cruel or both, I bragged about all the boys who called me, rolling my eyes with a carefree smile. And then one day they're on the school bus and she says, I made a careless comment about a zit she had and she flipped out. I don't know what she said or how she managed to do it, but in one day she turned her whole friend group against me, even Ben. It was a total coup. Yeah, it wasn't one thing she said. It was like a series of things she said, but it was one day everything changed. I do find this line either oblivious or cruel or bro- or both, because I think that's so true. Something that I feel about people who harbor resentments from middle school is I'm like, you have to move on. What a 12-year-old was saying to you was coming from such a fucking pubescent hot mess of hormones and insecurities. Like, I'm sure Constance was kind of a bitch and was bragging about the fact that boys liked her, but I'm absolutely sure it came from just such a pit of self-hatred and insecurities and being uncertain and just being like, at least I have this one thing. And just like teenage hormones. You're just loony. Yeah. And you're excited and you feel bad, but you constantly are feeling like you have to establish yourself. And I don't know, man, if you're going to hold what someone did at 12 or 13 against them, you need to get a goddamn grip unless it was like coming at you with a knife. (laughs) Like I do think that if someone said something mean about a pimple once, it's on you at some point to look internally and move on. <laughs> so Fiona never forgave her. All through the end of high school, they were in some activities together and Fiona would never acknowledge her again. I think that Fiona was just sick of being friends with Constance and was looking for any sort of hair trigger 
that she could launch on. They'd only been friends for one year. Yeah. And Constance spent the rest of high school trying to make amends. And at one point she wrote another long letter of apology that Fiona did not acknowledge. And that's another trap I've fallen into. The like years of attempting to make good again, something that was only good for like six months. (laughs) I think that that's a big pattern in her life. She has a lot of relationships that were like a week and a half. And then she's like, I thought about them for a decade. Fiona and Constance run into each other at an audition in their early 20s and Fiona still won't speak to her. And I'm like, Fiona, you have to get a grip. You have to get over it. Well, clearly Fiona is super jealous and rightly so because Constance, it seems, is quite successful eventually. So I think that this is the interesting part to me. This story is not that unusual or especially traumatic. Everyone gets bullied or hurt in some way during their childhood. Kids can be cruel. It's a normal part of life. Childhood is a testing ground for what type of person you want to be. And a part of that is trying things out, including cruelty and seeing how it feels. Does it make you feel better or worse, powerful or full of regret? And I do think that that is something we largely ignore because it feels better to like place yourself in a certain storyline of having been bullied or something like that. Like you always say, everyone was mean to someone in middle school. That just is the case. I can think of exactly the two people I was ruthlessly mean to. (laughs) But I also had people who were horrible to me. And I think about that all the time. Everyone thinks about what's coming in and no one really thinks about what they're projecting out. I also want to say in Constance's defense, after Fiona turned on her, they came after her. She was the president of the drama club. They had an anonymous suggestions box and they used to like bully her through it. They would say, we should impeach the president. The president has a mustache. That was something that was said about me and in fifth grade. And I know exactly the boy who did it. If I were to see him on the street and be like, in fifth grade, you made me insecure about my mustache. I'm the loser then. Yeah. Wax it or get used to it, Claire. (laughs) I have an appointment to get it waxed literally today. And I've addressed with it. I've moved on. For me to still be mad at him for something 15 years later, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal, but it is one of those things where it's because you have acknowledged the vicious circle. I do think people try stuff on. People try on cruelty. Like, does it feel good for me to be a huge bitch? So then the story ends with, because she was so rejected from that lunch group, she went and met a new woman named Molly, who is to this day one of her best friends. And she loves Molly and Molly loves her for her good and her bad. And when she confessed to Molly, her fantasy of cutting off all of Fiona's hair, Molly was like, that's hilarious. It is hilarious. (laughs) I don't hold on to any negative feelings about Fiona. She's not a bad person. And I know I was insensitive about her acne and her struggles with boys. We were both just teenagers figuring things out. Even though it was hard having my friend group ostracize me, I'm grateful it happened because that's how I met Molly. And then it ends with her joking about being a mother now. And can you just leave your kids alone? And she says, I know that kids eventually figure themselves out. And I think that this kind of with a grain of salt attitude that she has in her book actually makes it much better. Yeah. Because she's able to say like, here's something that happened to me. I mean, yeah, it definitely affected me, but it wasn't war. We always joke about how men have to find something else besides divorce to say is their core tragedy and wound because everyone's parents are divorced and we can't all go acting like that. And I, I think she does a good job of saying like, these things were really important to me and it shaped who I am, but I had some fault too. And also if you don't, control the narrative in your fucking 40s it is on you so this next one really hit me it's called of course she did and she talks about having this like cool brash teacher named mrs Cantor. and mrs Cantor was just like the teacher everyone was obsessed with everyone wanted to be mrs Cantor's favorite student she was an english teacher and one day she assigned this essay about some person in history and Constance writes her essay. She's extremely proud of it. She writes hers about Beethoven. Miss Cantor really hyped up writing a great intro and like how that was the most important part of the essay. And Constance is so fucking proud of her intro. She turns it in and Mrs. Cantor accuses her of plagiarizing because the intro is too good. And she doesn't think Constance is good enough to have written it. 
And she, instead of just saying this is plagiarized and constant saying, no, it isn't, she goes around to every single teacher in the school and makes them read the intro and says, is Constance good enough to have written this? They all say, no, she's not, except for Constance's drama teacher who says, of course she wrote it. And that has stuck with her through the rest of her. Like, this was a core trauma for her. And she acknowledges that it's obviously not that insane, but like, it kind of is. I think it would be shocking to see how many people have had an experience of a teacher absolutely ripping them to shreds. I had a teacher that was so mean to me. He used to tell me all the time that I was a bad writer. And it's just like, for what? I also went to a school that had like a decent creative and arts program. I do feel like English class is the only core class where you get to do anything remotely creative at any point in time. So to have that teacher constantly telling me that I sucked was a huge fucking blow to my existence. I do think one of the most important lessons as an adult is being good at the arts in high school translates to nothing. Yeah. (laughs) It really doesn't matter if you were good at English or good at painting or good at writing or good at theater in 11th grade. That has no bearing on your adult talent abilities. I had a couple teachers who like really went out of their way to be bitchy to me starting in like second grade. I had a second grade teacher tell my parents at a parent teacher conference that I wasn't smart. So when the (laughs) commenters say it, I'm like, well, you and Miss Cuccio, same page, baby. (laughs) And guess what? To you all, I say, would an idiot be able to talk into a microphone for two hours? Doubt it. She goes on as an adult to call this teacher, Mrs. Cantor. The teacher's basically like, okay, it doesn't really matter. And so Constance just has to sit there in her feelings and she looks back and her final thoughts in the essay are, I spent so long dwelling on the hurt that I hadn't been able to look beyond to see how it helped me, how it made me who I am today. It took me more than two decades to realize how significant it was that the only teacher who believed me was my drama teacher. And look what it led me to, a career, an entire life. So that's why I become an actor. Of course I did. But even if she hadn't gotten anything good out of it, I'm fully on her side for this. The fact that Mrs. Cantor years later barely even remembered the situation, but one day was so fucking bored that she decided to torture the shit out of a student is horrifying. I mean, it's crazy what teachers will say. Because it's not just some little thing teachers will say really fucking mean things my advisor in high school said something like okay so what the teachers don't like you because you give a bunch of blowjobs who cares and at that (laughs) point I had literally never done anything more than kiss a boy I was 14 years old and I just remember she said it so casually and joking like we were friends like we were just two gals in sex in the city she was a 55 year old woman and I was a 14 year old child and I just sat there and it was one of those things where immediately my eyes filled with tears and I was just like the teachers don't like me because they think I give too many blows like I was like what are you first of all is that what they sit around to talk about they got a chalkboard and they keep in tally and deciding who they like it was such a horrifying thing to say to a child it's just so crazy because i'm like wow a good teacher can make such an impact on someone's life and a bad teacher can really fuck shit up in unheard of ways (laughs) if mrs Cantor is sitting in the classroom being like constance Wu is actually one of my students once once upon a time fuck mrs Cantor. that's all i have to say (laughs) welcome to jurassic park this essay is about being an asian american in the U.S. with immigrant parents and then her experience going on to Fresh Off the Boat, which she calls not race neutral. It was race relevant. And especially not even just being Asian American anywhere in the U.S., being Asian American in a place where there was mostly just white people. Yeah, a conservative white suburb. She grew up outside of Richmond, Virginia, for those of you who don't know. I don't know why you would know because 
We didn't I had tell, to tell you. you until just now. <laughs> so she starts talking about growing up and she had a friend named Mary Martin who had all the Capri Suns and a big house and everything you would think in upper middle class white America, suburbia. And she was always shocked when Mary loved coming to Constance's house. And she was like, Mary never made me feel different. She didn't care that we didn't eat hamburger helper. Mary liked coming over for dinner because of the rice. While my sisters and I thought rice was bland and obligatory, Mary loved it. She has a pretty interesting experience where she was not made to feel necessarily other, but she still did because she was different. Her family was different. And she says that the people she knew didn't make her feel bad, but the people she saw on TV did. Still, I was often embarrassed to have her over, embarrassed of our house and how it was different. I thought Mary's house was the right way to be American and my house was the wrong way. But Mary liked being at my house. She didn't even notice that it was different. Even though I grew up in a conservative white suburb, it wasn't the people who made me feel different. It was TV. The houses on TV shows and movies all look like Mary's. None of them look like mine. While none of the other girls ever said anything, my face always burned with shame, especially if the character spoke in an Asian accent. I didn't want to be associated with them. I had done such a good job of fitting in, and I didn't want the dumb TV character to ruin it. It's like in the movie Jurassic Park when they figured out the T-Rex can't see you if you don't move. Anytime an Asian brought attention to their Asianness on TV, it it was like they were running around in front of a T-Rex. Shut up, go away. I wanted to yell at them. Stop making us look bad. I spent the next 20 years of my life trying to avoid being seen by T-Rexes. So then she gets fresh off the boat. And this is obviously her breakout role. It gives her kind of her whole career in TV and film. And she talks about how it was a huge deal, not just for her, but because it was the first time in 20 years that a TV show was going to center on an Asian American family story. When I got the part, I felt a mixture of happiness and uncertainty. I was elated to have an acting job, but fresh off the boat hit a lot of soft spots. And here I think she starts kind of planting the seeds for why she didn't like that role. One, it was a mainstream comedy, and I'd always considered myself a serious dramatic actress. Two, my character was a mom 10 years older than I was, which I'll admit was a blow to my vanity. I, that is frustrating, the idea that you and your son are probably the same age. Three, the softest spot of all was her Asian-ness, her demeanor, her values, her accent. She wasn't trying to avoid the T-Rex. She was taunting it. Because Fresh Off the Boat wasn't race neutral. It was race relevant. She says people hated it and loved it before it even came out simply based on a 30 second trailer because I'd spent my 20s more worried about rent than representation. I admittedly didn't know much about it, but suddenly there I was in the thick of it. I spent the first year simultaneously feeling afraid, happy, defensive, proud, and uncertain. Always uncertain. Fresh Off the Boat comes out. And I mean, I wasn't a part of these online conversations, so I don't remember them. But according to this book, she says a lot of people were excited, but a lot of people were critical. I think that always happens when one TV show is unfairly held up as a representation of truly a billion people. (laughs) And so she was pleasantly surprised when not only was it a success, but it was critically acclaimed. And there was a lot of criticism, too. The word stereotype got thrown around a lot, especially by Asian Americans themselves. Aren't you perpetuating stereotypes by playing a tiger mom? Why do you have to have a stereotypical accent? They all seem to be saying, don't you know that you're in Jurassic Park? It brought back the feelings I had as a kid where I wanted to yell at the TV, shut up, go away. Stop making me look bad. I don't want to be associated with someone that sounds like my parents. That's when I realized that my whole life, I let someone else's ignorant ridicule of my parents matter more than my actual lived experience of them. To lots of people, sure, my parents' accents sound like stereotypes, but to me, they're my parents. And then she talks about the way that certain actors will avoid stereotypical roles. And she says that career ethos that desire to shut down Asian stereotypes is a reaction to a Hollywood standard that was created by people who don't know us. I got into acting to be creative, not reactive. There will always be people who don't get it. You don't make art for them. So why let their ignorant ridicule inform your artistic choices? There are real people who genuinely embody stereotypical attributes. They are our mothers, our fathers, our aunts, our uncles, our bringing cousins. And I don't want to hide their voices or their stories. 
They are human too. And so she says, instead of like rejecting stereotypical characters, maybe we just need better actors playing them to humanize them and play them from our lived experiences and make them more fleshed out as opposed to like the stereotypes that have been reduced by Hollywood racism. There will always be someone who laughs at the wrong thing. In more than 100 episodes of Fresh Off the Boat, there are zero scripted jokes about Jessica's Asian accent. But some people still laughed at it. That's okay. We all have our little unconscious prejudices. There will always be idiots. True artists don't cater their choices to accommodate the idiots. They don't care if the idiots don't get it. I shouldn't call them idiots. They're not. They're not T-Rexes either. They're just people who don't know because they haven't seen a ton. And they haven't seen a ton because then we aren't letting ourselves be seen. They can't see us if we don't move. It is a hot take, but I also really like this take. I think that she's not playing a stereotypical character. She's playing an Asian mom. And if all you see are the stereotypes up top, then you're not watching her character. Like you're not paying attention to the show and you're probably insulting her acting. Yeah. I mean, I totally understand what she's saying. We're being like, just because I have a Chinese accent, I'm not ridiculing people. People who immigrate from China have an accent because it's their second language. And why is that seen as a negative thing in the first place? The fact that we allow that to be seen as making fun of someone when I am just playing who the character is. The character learned a second language and that should be something that's impressive, not something that's ridiculed. Exactly. And I think that if that's all you're seeing about the character, then like you're not watching the character. If, if that's something that you're feeling critical of, figure out why to you that's something to criticize. So this next chapter is about sexual assault. So trigger warning. So she talks about when she's 22 years old, She was out at a bar with friends. Her friends met another group of friends. I wasn't at all attracted to him, but I was excited about the date because I thought it somehow proved I was cool. He was 36 and acted like a real New Yorker. And unfortunately, that's all it really takes when you're 22. It really is. I will say even older, whenever someone like really takes initiative, they can be an absolute dud, but you're like, wow, he's really putting something forth here. And that is exciting. So they went on a date. It was good. They kissed afterwards. She floated home. He texted me for the next few days and we made plans to see each other again soon. For our second date, we had a dinner at a restaurant near his place. And after dinner, he said he had a gift for me. Could I come upstairs so he could give it to me? I felt a twinge of warning in my gut, but I ignored it. He didn't look threatening or shady in any way. And if you had been there, you would have agreed. Plus, I didn't want to insult his friendly invitation by making him think I perceived it as a threat. I mean, he was giving me a gift for gosh sake. So I went upstairs. So they end up kissing and of course the kissing escalates and when he goes to kind of go further, she goes, oh gosh, I'm sorry. I'm not ready to have sex with you. I said it clearly. It is a thing that I've always said when I don't want to have sex. I say it in a very specific way. I blush, embarrassed, and look up at the dude like a goddamn damsel, allowing him to be the hero who takes care of me. Ugh, I know it's so lame, but it's also true to my feelings. Even after many years of therapy, I am still always genuinely self-conscious, apologetic about my body the first time I'm naked with someone. I mean... It is that thing that is so hard to hear, but also true. Every woman has that way that she says things where you're like, okay, I am very firm in my belief right now, but I have to say it in a way that makes it feel like a gift for him. But as I blushed and got shy and apologized, ugh, for not being ready to have sex, he merely smiled as if he knew better, as if my vagina's wetness was more telling than the words coming out of my mouth. He gently got on top of me and held my face in his hands. He kissed my lips, my forehead, and looked into my eyes. He was being so tender. I repeated as seriously as I could. Really, I'm not ready for sex. My face blushing. He kissed me again like I was a baby kitten. Held me close, kissed me, gently moved my legs apart, and then he did it anyway. I didn't fight back. I just gave up. And she talks about how in that moment, the thing she was most upset about was her number going up. She says she was very proud of having 
had sex with two people and she didn't want her number to have increased to three. In movies, rape scenes are often dramatic and violent. In those early New York days when I was trying hard to be blasé and cool, it was embarrassing to have big feelings or reactions. Even in this moment, I wanted to be the cool girl. Cool girls don't freak out, especially when he was being so sweet and tender. So he did have an actual gift for her. He had written a short story, like a sci-fi fantasy situation where he saves her the damsel plus some earrings. She brings it home and her and her roommates laugh about it. She's not really able to talk about what happened. The roommate goes, have you even had sex with him? She asked. Oh my God, no, I lied. This guy is crazy. He wrote this thing and we haven't even had sex. That felt true because technically he had written it and wrapped it up in a rose petaled box before I came to his apartment. Crazy, we both said. It felt good to call him crazy, like a type of power. After a while, that lie became true. I let the denial become the truth. I mean, that guy was crazy and he like keeps hitting her up for months and months and months and she won't acknowledge him. And then he like calls her out of the blue months later and she accidentally picks up. And then finally she writes him an email and is like, please stop contacting me. And he screams at her. Then he takes it out on her. And I do think that this story is something that happens so often and is so difficult to categorize because the guy isn't being cruel. Like he's not seeking out to hurt you. He's just a bad person who thinks he's a nice person. Yeah. And so she talks about when the Me Too movement happened, she gave a lot of speeches and would be there for women. And she was calling to an end to the rape culture and stuff. And she says, when other people told their stories, I'd hold their hands and listen. One in five women experienced sexual assault. It's not your fault. I tell them you are not alone. All the while thinking how fortunate it was that I had never been raped. And then one day out of the blue, more than 10 years later, it all came back to me. My heart was pounding for a split second. I panicked, but then I talked myself out of the panic. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, well, I guess that's what that was. I mean, I know it was, but it feels weird to call it that. It's also weird that I forgot, but I'm honestly fine. I don't feel traumatized. So then she talks about why this memory was suppressed for so long, how she feels that finally because of success and where she is in her life, maybe this memory finally felt safe. I was finally and professionally secure. I'd reached a place in my life where people actually listened to me. And that is when it came flooding back. Whenever I hear a high profile man defending himself against a sexual harassment claim, I often see how baffled he is, blindsided. How he thought it was consensual, how, like Ty, he thought he was a good guy. The guy who made love to me tenderly and wanted to see me again and bought me nice jewelry and wrote me an entire love story. I can hear his honest refusal in my head. I have the text messages where she even thanked me for a nice night. She cuddled with me after. Then she ghosted me. Then she dumped me over email when she promised she'd call. She's a thief too because she never returned the pearl earrings or the story like she promised. And now she's calling me a rapist? In what world is that even plausible? I wonder if our culture tends to sympathize with accused men because their bafflement over the accusations often so genuine. And that is it. It's just like the lack of listening, like the way he moved towards her, like he knew better. He did think he knew better and he was assaulting her. Yeah. He just didn't believe her. I did not consent to sex. Maybe it wasn't violent, but it was rape, period. Some people might say I should have fought back against Ty, but if I could go back in time, I wouldn't even change how I reacted that night because when I think about the girl I was back then, I understand what she was going through, why she didn't fight back. She wasn't ready yet to bear the insults and derision that follow when women make scenes and I wouldn't make her do something before she was ready. The only thing I'd change is that I wish I had told my roommate what happened instead of laughing about the rose petal box and short story. Not so she'd make me report it or anything, but so she could have held my hand so she could have listened to me. I mean, I do really appreciate her sharing this story because I think it is a very common one and a very under-discussed version of sexual assault. She mentions in this story that there wasn't much to report. He had text receipts and all I had was my voice saying, I'm not ready. I hadn't recorded it. Who would have believed me? I mean, I've been in this exact situation where you're in your house. It's after a date. You liked the person. You would have 
seen them again probably, but they don't listen to you. And now in order to like get them away from you, you either have to do something you don't want to do or change the tone and be a person you don't want to be in that moment. Either way, you're submitting yourself to a version of yourself that you are not interested in being in that moment and be all because someone won't listen to you when you're saying normal words. Yeah, she also talks about how when she had this realization 10 years later, she's not a pack rat and she doesn't keep a lot of things, but she still had that story he had given her. And she was so grateful because when she touched her, she's like, okay, it was real. And the fact that she had that evidence helped her believe herself. And I think that that's the problem when you feel like you don't have any evidence. It's very easy to not believe yourself and be like, mm-hmm. did I make this up? Reading the story, I was thinking about moments that I've been in situations like this. And there are moments that I like forgot about until I was really thinking on it. One time, not that long ago, I like threw someone out of my house because they like weren't listening to me. And then I was so mad. I wanted to have gone on a nice date tonight. I don't want to have thrown someone out of my house. And then there are times when I didn't throw them out of my house. And then I'm like, well, I don't want that version of the night to have existed either. I don't know. If you're a man who listens to this podcast, fucking listen to people. It's not hard. (laughs) I was like, should I make a packet of all of the salt stories from all of these memoirs so that you could give it to your sons when they're like 13 years old? And you're like, read this. Experience female perspective. (laughs) Understand humanity. And that is one of the most hard to read parts about this is that I'm sure that guy does have the version of the story in his head where she was the bad person. She was the person who had sex with him and then didn't want to talk ever again, ghosted him, stole his story. I'm sure he's like, I'm such a nice guy. Nice guys finish last. I do everything women say they want. I buy them jewelry. I write them love stories. Women don't want that. (laughs) Anyway, I'm really glad that she shared this story because I do think it is an untold story for a lot of people. And I think it took a lot to tell it. Especially in a culture where a lot of people could be like, so what happened? That's nothing. Exactly. Then she has little Cassandra, which is, I think an essay you did not like. And I understand why. I guess I didn't hate the essay, but I don't love the conclusion of it. We exhibit a lot of this behavior. Okay, so can I say, I actually think that the reason I didn't like it is because I don't think this is a likable behavior that we have. And so as much as I'm like, wow, I'm really proud of her bringing light to all of these difficult to talk about topics. I'm like, not this one. It's embarrassing. Okay. So this is a chapter about how she feels she has to fight for all of her roles. She's always been viewed as the ingenue. It was hard for her to get any serious roles, even though she views herself as a serious actress. No one ever saw her as more. She I talks- also want to say the ingenue roles. She's talked about Juliet and Romeo and Juliet. So it's not like she was reduced to just the hot bimbo. She also Laura and the glass menagerie. These are like important real roles. I've always had to fight for my roles. In my career, casting directors often refused to see me for auditions, saying I was the wrong type, that they couldn't picture me in the role. Undeterred, I'd find the audition size myself, film myself, and email it to the casting director, often refreshing the private viewing link over and over again to check the view count. I rarely got parts this way, but I always tried, even when it felt pathetic or embarrassing, which it almost always did. It's what I did for my role in the television pilot browsers. I even did it after I was famous for my role in Hustlers. So this I actually liked. I thought it was really interesting the way that she's like scrappy and figures out her own way into certain roles and especially because it's paid off so much. Well, then she goes, for Crazy Rich Asians, I was told that my TV filming schedule conflicted with the dates, that there was just no way it could happen, but I didn't give up. I wrote an impassioned personal email to the director. I had the audacity to ask him to change the filming dates for me. And obviously it worked. She was the star of it. That part I liked. Like I found it really interesting that she did that. And then she says, I had to fight so hard while other people just seem to be blessed. You know, those folks, when they walk into a room, the air changes. They are the golden ones. You just know they're movie stars. You can't take your eyes off of them. Usually tall and striking. They have the it factor that I never had. 
They can screw up an audition and still get the part because the director feels they just are the part. There's no other choice. This is not to say the Golden Ones have no talent. They usually do. You have to have talent to succeed. It's just that they don't arrive wearing Apollo's chain, which is a reference to an earlier audition she had. She says they can just arrive. So ironically, the earlier audition she's talking about is when she wanted to play Cassandra. And in order to get the role, she had to really do a great audition. And she came wearing a scarf as chains. And she did get it. And I guess I just feel like I'm like, I'm sorry that you had to audition well to get something. I understand having a little bit of resentment of having to fight hard for getting where you are, but it is a hard industry. And I wonder how many people truly are these golden ones who can just arrive. I don't know. I'm just like to hear her be like, it actually is really hard though. I guess I don't know in Hollywood what the expectation is for offer only, like how high you have to be to get offer only. But I guess I don't think it's so horrible to audition for parts that you get. Yeah, because you did still get it. It's funny, every other chapter that we love, she always has the silver lining. She's like, Fiona ditched me. I met Molly. My English teacher was mean to me. I loved my drama teacher. And here she's like, can you believe I had to work really hard to become a star? It sucks. Yeah, and then the conclusion is like, it's not fair. And you're like, okay. (laughs) I do believe it. I don't think things ended necessarily unfairly for you a lot of people still out there toiling it's like until a few years ago i was waiting tables and it's like and some of those people if you go back to those restaurants are still there (laughs) well you know where you can always be the star of your own story june's journey whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while june's journey is the perfect game for you search for hidden clues to solve mystery after mystery across thousands of vivid scenes Plus, there are new chapters every week, and there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. June's Journey is a enthralling whodunit where you play as June Parker, an amateur detective on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You'll need to find objects hidden in intricate scenes full of little details before the time runs out. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective and download June's Journey today, available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on the PC through Facebook games. Then, once you're home, alone, tucked in, and ready for a different kind of story, dive into your latest fantasy through Dipsy. Whether you're feeling anxious, overwhelmed, or just in the mood, shift gears with Dipsy, and it'll help you focus on what makes you feel good. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed for women by women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes, characters, no matter who you're into, what turns you on, there is a story for you. For me, I'm a big fan of some of their new written stories. I love to read it. You guys know I'm a big reader, okay? I like to read the written stories that Dipsy has to offer. They also offer sleep stories and wellness sessions. It's your go-to to spice up some me time, explore your fantasies, or heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsy, D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash worm. That's dipsystories.com slash worm. Okay, so this next story, I guess we'll just run through. It is a short, sexy story that turns unsexy real quick. This is, again, where I think she shines. Just these super relatable human, I can't believe this happened because it would happen to me. So basically, I'll give it real quick. She has this guy. They were in a show together. Apparently, he has a big dick. She's low-key obsessed with penis size. She mentions it a lot. Whatever. He gets her with the phrase, do you want to feel its size? And she claims that those were sexy in the moment, which is okay. Constance, I believe women. Anyway, 
they become fuck buddies for three years, but it's more than that. They really like each other. It's going on all the time. He's always inviting her out to hang out with his friends. She never wants him to meet her friends. And then at one point he introduces her to his parents. There's a night where they sleep together and then they go do a crossword in a diner and eat pie. It was more than a fuck buddy and it went on for years and it always felt like something was going to happen. And she's like, he was never in love with me, but there was definitely moments where it felt close. Like when he showed up in the rain after bombing an audition and just needed someone to be there for him. And she let him into her apartment. Anyway, time goes by. She's feeling confused about their relationship status. And then she talked to a friend about it. Turns out she knows this guy, the friend. And this guy actually lives in Park Slope with his girlfriend of 14 years. Ah! <laughs> so she yells at him. Three months later, he calls her up and is like, I did it. I broke up with her. They end up having sex in her car. And then she's like, so what are we? Are we together now? And he's like, huh? <laughs> and she's like, well, you broke up with her for me, no? And he's like, well, since I broke up with her, I met someone else. And now me and that someone else are engaged. <laughs> she met another woman who got engaged in three friggin' months. Is this John Hamm? It couldn't be, right? <gasps> it couldn't be. It couldn't be! <laughs> Hold on. Can we pause real quick so I can do some giggling? Okay, find out when he broke up with Jennifer Westenfeld. No, it's not him. Okay, sorry. But in many ways, it could have been. It was a John Hamm type. <laughs> Long-term girlfriend, huge dick, big idiot. <laughs> so then she's like horribly angry at him. Rightfully so. What is wrong with this man? And he starts crying to her and he's like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm just like a shark. I have to keep moving forward. And she's like, and so there I am comforting this poor shark because, you know, it's not his fault he cheats. There's something wrong with him. Years later, she runs into him at a film festival. Luckily, she's on her way to a limo and he's like, looking good. What are you doing later? You want to come to a party? And she's like, don't say that. No. <laughs> he texts her. She ignores it. And they run into each other years later again at a cafe. And he's like, I thought you changed numbers. And that's why you never answered. And she's like, how could you be so narcissistic just to think the only reason I wouldn't respond is because I changed numbers. Like, no, I saw your text. I ignored it. And then they get coffee and He's still with his wife. Things are going bad, of course, and he's struggling. And she's like, we're all good now. If I saw him again, we'd say, hey. And I'm like, Constance, this is an evil man. I think it's because when she saw him again, he wasn't doing good. Like, I think if that second time that they saw each other again after years, if he had like tried to get her again, I think she would be like, fuck off. But I think it's very easy to be like, all right, we're cordial. It just is what it is. Like, she's not hurt by it anymore. We both laughed and the hatchet was fully buried. We talked until I had to go. We shared a genuine hug. I walked out of that coffee shop, happy to remember the good stuff, to know that throughout all the lies and drama, our bond hadn't been false. I find this very likable about her. This is not where you want her to end up. You don't want her to share a pleasant coffee where he's probably talking about the other women he's now cheating with. But maybe she's like Taylor Swift where she like buries hatchets but keeps maps of where she puts them. I mean, as you said it before, stars, they're just like us. She's such a person. And I believe that all celebrities are people, but they're too afraid to tell anyone. And she's not. And I really love that about her. I think because she did take so long to get famous that she had an entire 20s full of very normal experiences. Yeah. So this next chapter is about her experience making Fresh Off the Boat. It's called You Do What I Say. And this is based off of the line that the producer of the show would always say to her. You do what I say, he said, shrugging. It was his catchphrase for me, and he loved it. He said it real casually, not demanding or aggressive, but almost pleasant, like he was stating a fact. And so at first, he really gets in with her by basically saying, the studio didn't want you. They wanted to go with a big name, but I pushed for you. You owe me. And then they become buddies, but he becomes very possessive. I mean, you know how it happens. It's a tale as old as time. It's you owe me. 
do what I say. First, he gets her to leave her agent and go with an agent he pushes. He's controlling of her time, taking up her time on the weekends, evenings when she already has a full shooting schedule where he's like, you know, I said you'd make an appearance at this film festival. I said you would show up at this thing. He wants to go to a basketball game and he just insists that she come to a Lakers game with him, even though she wanted to just stay home and play with her pet rabbit. And so she gives a scene of them at this basketball game and in it, he is really being gross to her and he's mad that she's not so appreciative and impressed with these basketball tickets. And then he touches her thigh and says, you have such soft skin. And when she's like, oh, gross, like you're such a dick, he grabs her crotch and then she gets stern with him. And then he buys her a jersey afterwards and he's always requesting that she send him selfies. He says to her, you know what the best part about producing this show is? That I can fuck whatever aspiring Asian actress I want to. And when Constance goes, what about your wife? Eh, we have an arrangement. Constance can feel the hot air of this lie. She knows there's no arrangement because she knows he doesn't actually cheat on his wife. It's all talk, but she plays along, giving him his favorite insult compliment. Oh my God, you're so Hollywood. She says, to be honest, it didn't feel like a big deal at the time. I was fine, happy even. I was genuinely grateful for his support and it made him feel good to protect me too. It was a win-win situation where he was helpful to me, the helpless. But to maintain that dynamic, he needed me to be helpless. And for a while I was. So she talks about how Fresh Off the Boat started in January. It was a mid-season pickup. So they filmed it all before it had aired. So the job security was not there. Like they didn't know what the reaction to the show would be. She could very easily be unemployed again next season. She didn't have the security of being like, I am the star of this successful show. You can't fuck with me because if you fire me, it looks bad. And so then she explains he keeps pushing her, trying to make demands of her time. Finally, by season two, when she feels confident and comfortable in her role, she refuses to do something he wants her to do. And he stops speaking to her and he becomes very cold towards her. And everyone else starts liking him a lot because he kind of goes out of his way to endear himself to the rest of the cast and the crew. And she becomes extremely paranoid and nervous and admits she did not treat everyone great all the time. At one point, she yells at Randall Park for taking a radio interview that she was supposed to be a part of. That was completely the publicist's fault that she was edged out of. He didn't do it. And she's like, I treated him like shit for a few weeks, even though I knew it wasn't his fault. She talks about getting really mad at her friend Chelsea, who was a different character on the show because it seemed like the director liked her better. And so she lashed out at both of them and she's like I just I didn't have any friends at that level I didn't have anyone I could trust it is like a deeply stressful situation because not only was she the star of this show having never done network television before but she also was becoming famous which I think is an enormous stress that we don't talk about because everyone's like well you're so lucky that now you're famous I think it can be really deeply stressful to like suddenly not have full control over your image and who you are and like where you go she also says that around season two, she told a few people what the producer M had done to her and no one chose to speak up. And she's like, I recognize now that I put my co-stars and crew in an unfair position because this was pre me too. There just wasn't anything anyone can do. And she's like, I didn't have any proof. I wouldn't even really talk about what had happened because it felt like nothing, but I knew I felt uncomfortable and that he was being unfair to me. She talks about how jealous she was of her castmates for just being able to have fun on set because to her, that set was not a fun and warm place to exist. It was very stressful. And then another one of the stresses was that this was her first major acting role, like we said. So there was a lot of things that she didn't know were normal and she was too afraid to ask questions. So she was stressing herself out in these situations, like not knowing what she had to say yes to, like what was standard practice. I think that there was a lot that was on her and a lot that was on the situation, and then a lot that was on the producer. Yeah, this is why it's important to become friends with people you work with so you can ask around. Yeah. (laughs) 
Anyway, so we'll get to the crux of the matter. After the fifth season, everyone thought the show was getting canceled. The numbers had dwindled. The showrunner was leaving. They asked if they should pursue other projects in anticipation of the show's cancellation. While they didn't make any promises, they gave us their blessing to do so. Cancellation became a foregone conclusion. Right after the fifth season wrapped, Crazy Rich Asians is a huge success. And because of that success, there's a lot of talk about like Asian representation in film and media. And everyone's like, oh, we have to bring back Fresh Off the Boat. There's like renewed interest. Yeah. Especially in her. I mean, she's now a major film star. Exactly. The way she was is like, oh, Crazy Rich Asians did well. So now people thought Fresh Off the Boat might do well. And I'm like, oh, the connection was you. You were the star of both. The show gets renewed. And then as we know, if you follow the internet, she tweeted like a kind of cagey tweet about how upset she was. I think she might have commented on the show's Instagram saying like, fuck. My feelings were overwhelming. A tsunami crashed in my body. Betrayal, helplessness, like they'd lied to me. I had kept my head down and tolerated the discomfort for so long, trying to preserve everything for everybody else, and I just couldn't do it anymore. I needed to put my feelings somewhere other than my own body, which was that capacity. I didn't think about the lack of context, didn't care about how bad it looked. From the first, no one wanted you. Every time M said, you do what I say, to the arm fat jiggling, to my withdrawal and isolation on set when I saw everyone being buddy-buddy with M, even after I told them that he'd sexually harassed me, which meant they obviously didn't believe me. I didn't care how I sounded. I just needed to finally make a sound. I wasn't home in LA at the time. I unleashed all my pent-up feelings on social media. The backlash was immediate. Ungrateful bitch, how dare you? Boo-hoo, poor actress has to go back to her high-paying job. That was a Shoyden fraud that always follows a big social media scene. I actually remember this going down. The backlash was huge, and she says she tried to stay off social media, but it was bigger than social media. It was on the news. It was in magazines. She literally could not leave her apartment and escape it. People were sending her emails, DMs. Though I stopped looking at social media accounts, I still received DMs through email. I apologized to a very upset former colleague of mine over DM. She replied with DM after DM shaming me, telling me that nothing I could ever do would make up for my atrocious behavior and discussing ingratitude. How I had sullied the one shining beacon of hope for Asian Americans. How selfish I was to not consider everyone else's job on the show. She demanded I bake cookies for and grovel at the feet of Randall and every single crew member of Fresh Off the Boat, but said even that wouldn't be enough to make up for what I had done. She told me how the show had been her nephew's favorite and how I had ruined it for him, that I devastated him and I would never, ever be able to make up for it. Her DMs made me feel helpless and desperate, my heart full of sharp tacks. Why wouldn't she believe my remorse that I hurt as badly as she wanted me to? My head spinning, I realized I needed a wound to prove it, to prove that I hurt as bad as everyone said that I deserved to hurt and it couldn't be a little wound. It had to be the biggest wound in the world for it to be enough. And then she stands out on her balcony. She is considering jumping. And then her friend sees her and comes to get her, takes her to a mental hospital. She ends up getting a new therapist and working through all of this in therapy. And then on the next season of Fresh Off the Boat, she apologizes individually to the cast members she's close to. She does a huge speech for the entire crew. And I don't want to make this a male-female thing, but it just is. The amount of male actors that talk shit on shittier roles they've done and I'm not saying this is necessarily a shitty role, but like it is campy network television. After Crazy Rich Asians, she could have done anything. I'm sure whatever projects she had on the hook were going to be very cool. And I'm sure they were in line with the kind of thing she wanted to do. She sees herself as a serious, theatrically trained actress. Right. So the way that she is viewed as like a fucking demon for having not hyper specifically but broadly specifically said that she hated fresh off the boat i just met somebody who is on one of those serial like an ncis or blue bloods or something and the main man on it you're not allowed to look at him Ugh. and the guy i met is a series regular he's on like 
five to eight episodes per season and has been for the last three years. And he still is not allowed to look at him. And I'm not even talking about being difficult to work with, like in the moment. I'm talking about people like Robert Pattinson saying Twilight fucking blows. Like, I mean, he didn't say that exactly, but he used to talk shit on it. And now he's like, oh, I'm grateful for it. But there are so many people who like, I mean, Jim from The Office. Yes. He hates Jim. I get that these TV shows mean a lot to people. And I understand like your nephew probably was happy to see someone that looked like him, like representing his experience or whatever. But the idea that she could have ruined that because she herself didn't like her job. Like who, who gives a shit? It's also like when you're reading how much like anxiety and fear and shame was tied to every moment on that set for her. Then it's like, yeah, of course she wanted to leave aside from the fact that she also just had cooler shit she could have done. I think that probably the bulk of it was like, there's better stuff that I can literally do whatever I want now. But also it wasn't good for her. Like it wasn't a fun experience. The effect of what she did did not hurt anybody as bad as what the people then did to her. Exactly. To exact revenge. So then she says, a lot of people think I lost jobs because of that tweet. But actually what happened is any job she was going to have, she couldn't do anyway because she had to do the next season and fresh off the boat. At the end of that season, she was pregnant. So she took time off. By the time she was ready to go back, it was a pandemic. And she's like, honestly, good. If a project doesn't want me because of the public persona, I don't want to do that project. I want to do projects based on my talent. She seems happy with what happened. At the end of the day, she's stronger for it. It is interesting looking back at that chapter that you didn't like. That is the only chapter that doesn't end with a positive. Because even this chapter, she looks back and says, I'm glad I can handle the hate now. I'm glad that happened. It made me a stronger, better person. And I don't even think it negatively affected my career. Okay. So then she has another chapter about another guy <laughs> that wouldn't commit to her that she stayed on the hook for for like 15 years. This one is embarrassing to me. They dated for a little bit. So they met when he was like a TA in her Shakespeare workshop. Then he moved to become a teacher, I think. I don't know. But basically they broke up years later. They reconnected. So they met when she was dating Buck, the guy from the first chapter. Then they like reconnected a couple years later, dated for like a summer and then broke up. He broke up with her and she was so upset she moved to LA because of how heartbroken she was over this guy. Then they reconnected again, dated again for like a few weeks. For, I thought it was like a couple years. I don't think so. It was a couple years, but long distance. Yeah, but I don't think they were officially together. I think that they- No, they never were like officially together. But for a few years, she was in love with him and he was like the dominant man in her life. And this was while she was on Fresh Off the Boat. Yeah. So when she was like so famous, she was visiting this guy in Ireland who would not be her boyfriend. She moved to LA out of sadness and she's obsessed with him and just like wondering why he doesn't love her back. And she decides, this is something that I'm like, oh boy, (laughs) I don't know if I agree with this. She says, I finally accepted that he didn't love me back anymore. My shoulders dropped and my breathing softened. That's okay, I told myself. I'm sad, but I'm okay. I'm still me. I can still love. And I was like, okay, beautiful. And then she goes, I decided to love George without reciprocation, without contact or communication. Instead, I learned to see his face in every face I met. This would have been beautiful had they not gotten back together. Long story short, they're saying I love you. They're talking all the time. He refuses to be her boyfriend. And she writes him like a hundred page letter that she eventually tears up and just writes an email and is like, I can't even be friends with you anymore. I get getting really hung up, especially on something that never was because after that first time they dated, they never lived in the same city. It was always visiting. And so I think when you don't have a strong context of what it's like to genuinely be with someone, it's easy to let like the romantic notion of what it's like to be with someone 
float to wherever you want it to float to. And then it's easy to get hung up on that because you have no proof otherwise because you were never truly together in any real situation. But like, I don't think she's even realized that yet. George was mean. If it never worked, that means it couldn't have worked. If it could have worked, it would have. It happened the way it happened and it couldn't have happened another way because it didn't. I don't believe in if he wanted to, he would. But I do believe if it could be, it would be. But it just can't be. Yeah. If you tried at it for 15 years, multiple times, and he never dated you once, there was no version of your relationship that would have been good because he didn't want that relationship. And to be in a good relationship, two people have to want it at a bare minimum. And as I said (laughs) earlier, sometimes two people loving each other isn't even enough. But do you know what I love enough to make work? Warm food that I didn't have to cook. Freshly has lunch and dinner covered with fresh made meals delivered straight to your door. Get delicious, nutritious, prepared meals delivered right to your door. They're never frozen and they're ready to enjoy in literally just three minutes. You don't have to cook them. There's no dishes, no trips to the store. It's so easy to have a nutritious, well-balanced meal ready for you in minutes. I love how fast it is. I love how easy it is, especially as the weather is getting so chilly to have warm food that you can have ready in seconds, not seconds. Well, a couple hundred seconds is such a treat, such a joy. I'm so happy to have them when I'm too lazy to cook something and I will not do a dish. I hate doing dishes. And with Freshly, you don't have to. Having one less thing on your plate never tasted so good. Take advantage of Freshly's end of summer sale and score a special deal off your first five orders at Freshly.com slash worm when you order today. That's Freshly.com slash worm. Freshly.com slash worm for $125 off your first five orders. Okay, the final chapter. Ironically, reading this, I remember thinking, wow, I liked this book, but odd that she never once mentioned her parents. And then we get to the final chapter, which is all parents all the time. A real ode and then an unode and then a re-ode. So she talks about her mom first and how her mom was elegant and beautiful and honestly quite chill. Yeah, her mom was very hands off. And she actually talks about ironically, whenever people would interview her about her character on Fresh Off the Boat, they were always like, oh, you must have based it in your mom. And she was like, actually, I do not because my mom was not at all like this. My mom did not care what I did. She didn't even check homework. She just let me be me. And she was beautiful and charismatic and everybody liked her. And one time... I really wanted to audition for something and we were too late and she surprised me by having called up the casting director and demanding I get an audition and taking me to the audition. So that's the kind of mom she was. And then, of course, as all things happen, women decide they need their own lives, which is the greatest sin a mother could perpetrate on a child is to have interiority. So when she was in high school, her mom started taking community college classes and ended up going on to have her own career. And with her career came less time for homemaking The dishes went undone. The toilets went unscrubbed. It was a real slight against the whole family. Meanwhile, her dad was a professor, a scientist, I think. Mm -hmm. He was a professor of biology. And he was just like a sweet, quiet man. She talks to both of them about their love story after they'd gotten divorced when Constance went to college. And they both have pretty different takes on it. I fell in love with her, but she didn't pay much attention to me. She was so popular. And then I had to go away. He had gotten a full ride scholarship at Michigan State's doctoral program, but he didn't forget her. I wrote her letters almost every week, every week for a whole year. She didn't write a single letter back until one day out of the blue, he got a letter from her. We should get married. It said, come get me in Taipei and I will marry you. He couldn't believe it. So he like goes to his professor, asks for time off, goes back, gets her. When he got there, he said, my mom was cold and blunt. I don't know why I wrote that to you. I don't love you. I won't ever love you. 
After he flew across the world full of hope and love and anticipation, I won't ever love you, was what my mom said to him. But I still married her because you know what? I was in love with her, even if she wasn't in love with me. They got married. Dad flew back to America alone, and mom would follow in a month after sorting out moving and visa logistics. He told me that he was weeping so much on the flight back and that the flight attendants were worried about him. I decided on that flight that I was going to do whatever it took to earn her love, he told me. He had earned everything else in his life. He was determined to earn this too. So the mom side of the story is, yeah, there was a guy that I met like once and then he started writing me letters every day and I didn't really know why because we didn't know each other. She had a job as a receptionist like across the hall from where he worked. And she's like, I could tell he was in love with me because he looked at me all the time, but he never said a word to me. And then one day he just shows up at my house with a box full of mangoes from his parents' farm. And he's like, I'm moving to America. And she's like, okay, good for you. And he gives her the mangoes and she's like, they were great mangoes. So he leaves and he just starts writing her every week. And she's like, I never read them. I had no idea who he was writing me. I did not know this man. They'd literally spoken like once in the hallway and then once when he showed up at our house. And then what was happening was like her dad was sick and she was taking care of her brother and she was overwhelmed. And then this guy, she really like broke up with her. And then everybody was like, well, when are you getting married? When are you getting married? When are you getting married? And she's like, I guess I just have to get married. And so impulsively out of heartbreak, just like Constance, she writes her dad and goes, fine, I'll marry you. You have to come get me though. And so he writes back and he's like, great, sounds good. And he's, she's like, don't do that. That was crazy. I didn't mean that at all. And he shows up and she goes, no, I will never love you. I don't know you. Of course I can't fucking marry you. But he keeps begging her. Yeah. And then they get married and then he goes back to America and she says that she was not planning to follow him to America. She was like, this is a horrible idea. We don't know each other. And he begs. Yeah. And she says that he begs and says, I'll die if you don't come I'll kill myself and Constance is like that part's probably not true and the dad says what no that's not true TBD if that's true so basically she's like well I didn't want him to kill himself so I went because I felt guilty and I had no reason not to and then she got there and was like this was a huge mistake and her mom was like don't worry I will pay him back all of the money he spent on the flights and the time so you can come home and she goes I was ready to come home and my mom was going to fully reimburse him And then we had sex one time and I got pregnant. So I was like, well, I guess I'm stuck. Yeah. And then she loved being a mom. And, you know, she loved Constance and her sisters. And then, you know, time went on and she decided to build her own life. And she didn't love the dad and she never loved the dad. And it is very sad. But it seems like she felt very resentful. And of course, Constance tells the time old story of once her mom left for the weekend and everyone felt so bad for her dad having to be a single dad for the weekend. Meanwhile, he would take sabbaticals and go on research trips and no one ever felt bad for the mom. And you know, he says the day I decided to divorce her, his gallbladder exploded and she refused to take him to the hospital because she, she was tired of being everyone's chauffeur. And that's when he was like, I realized she would never take care of me. So the divorce got really messy. Um, the dad ended up getting custody of the youngest daughter and then I don't even think it was a custody thing the fight was over the money and he thought it was really unfair that the wife would get half of his money yeah that's what he was fighting for he kept saying I won't be able to retire on time because she took half my savings yes so Constance wrote a letter saying I guess to the judge taking the dad's side and saying that their mom had been negligent that was what he was arguing that she didn't deserve any alimony because she had been a negligent parent and Constance wrote a letter agreeing to that and then Her dad was like, I ended up never using that letter because I didn't want your mom to hate you. You know, we have this story about Ty and about all these men who think they're such good men and little do they know how much they're hurting people and women. And then she has a story about her dad and she's like, my dad is right. He never threatened to kill himself, but I'm sure my mom felt that way. Meanwhile, we have just heard a story about a man 
who went back to Taiwan and insisted on marrying a woman who to his face kept saying, I don't know you. I don't love you. I don't want to marry you. And then like, she's the crazy one. She's the unreliable narrator. Why did he do that? That was a crazy thing to do. So she ends up having a period of time where she doesn't speak to her mom at all. They reconciled during the pandemic. Yeah. So they didn't speak for five years. Her mom was blocked on everything. And her dad is still her best friend. One of her best pals. The thing is, I think men can be good dads, but not good husbands. I agree. And I think people have a hard time seeing that in a father. But it ends, I mean, it ends on a very sweet note where she really understands what her mom went through. And she says, a lot of people are afraid when people say, oh, I'm turning into my mother. But she goes, I don't know that I ever could turn into my mother because I don't think my mother ever got the chance to turn into herself. Yeah. Which is a big thing to recognize and how unfair everyone had been on her mom. So that's the book. I really recommend it. This one gets a, if you want to read it, you should. I thought it was good. I liked it. It's just very real. Like it's not celebrity-ish. It's not celebrity-ish at all. It's like, here's some human experiences that you probably went through too. And you're like, I did. (laughs) Oh my God, I did. I know that feeling. You guys, we love you so much. Please, 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 please. If you're in the Boston area, you're within driving distance. If you're in America, if you have access to a plane but are in a different country, come to the Boston show. Canada, you could drive. Yeah, you could drive from Canada. You could drive from Missouri. I don't know where things are, but please come. Also, tune into the Patreon. I'm about (laughs) to read for the next four straight days. We're doing Deep D's book. We are doing LA Candy. Oh, I'm going to read Joe Troman's book. So we've got a lot of fun stuff on the Patreon. As always, we'll have hot takes on all the celeb gossip. We love you more than anybody, but who do we love the most? We love our five-star reviewers the most. Maya's fucking dead. Oh my God, I hope not. Uh, Cass BWR. Um, thank you for casting this stone, golden stone of a review. <laughs> thank you, Car In, the only car that I like. Because other than that, I'm fully against them. Thank you to Gray Slam, Gray Screen. Thank you for bringing a couple shades of a stunning color. Thank you, Nasty Natey. Um, Stay nasty, baby. Thank you to Cody Howell. We'll both howl up at the same moon tonight. Code. Thanks to Sarah Paints Pets. Oh my God, thank you for doing the only art that I truly believe in. Thank you to Elise Police. Oh my God. I don't trust the cops, but I would call on Elise. Thank you to Mallory SH. Nothing mal about this review. Thank you to Alex Hunter. I'm so glad you were able to hunt down this podcast. And that is it for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you. Bye.